God is in control, and He closes His revelation to us, revealing His solution, not only for the Israeli-Palestinian impasse, but also the solution to all conflicts. I'm Mary Wurtson, and this is Truth Encounter. Dave and I have lived in Texas since 1971. We've had some super times with our kids vacationing in Galveston. Did you know that it used to be the largest city east of the Mississippi, by far the largest city in Texas? A hundred years ago, the fortunes of Galveston changed in one day. Let's join Dave in Revelation chapter 10 for a message titled "The Eye of the Storm." Isaac was an expert on the paths of hurricanes. He constantly wrote in the newspaper these words. Anyone that believes that our fair city, that's rapidly becoming the New York of the Southwest, anyone that believes that our fair city could be destroyed by a hurricane, is peddling in the absurd. And so he confidently got up on September 8th, and the weather forecast from the United States weather bulletins that were put out that day predicted that there would be rain followed by fair skies and clearing. On Galveston Beach, mothers and dads played with their children. All that Saturday, it was the waves were a little bit rougher than they had been in the past, but it made it even more fun because usually the、uh, the lake of the Gulf is like a lake and it's placid and calm. If the waves were rolling in, and、uh, so they were out there doing the body surfing and really enjoying it. But as the day progressed, there was just an ominous kind of a the the sky got that kind of a glassy look. And as Isaac went out into the evening, he began to have some misgivings. By the next morning, eight thousand Galveston, Texas residents were dead. Isaac, during the night, went out on the front porch of his home in the heart of Galveston. It had been built up on stilts. As he looked out, he looked out at total destruction. It looked relatively calm and the tremendous force of the wind, but it looked like the destruction had just about passed. But little did he know that there had been a tremendous sea wall that had come through and just piled all the debris of that city several stories high. And then the backwash started coming through, and when that backwash came through, it brought tons of material down upon his house and just swept his house underneath him. He grabbed the hand of his little girl, fell into the water, and the last thing he knew is he went unconscious. He woke up and he was paddling in the waters. By some miracle, he was saved. He found even his little girl had been saved, but it took him all the way until September 30th before they found his wife. The way they found his wife is they went into the debris that was kind of in the area of his house and the rubble of his house, and they found a torn dress that she had been wearing. And in the midst of the tangle of brush and the tangle of lumber and all the things that you build homes of, they found her wedding rings on the decomposed finger. The only way they recognized Isaac's wife was by the wedding and engagement ring that he had given her. You know the sad thing of the tremendous horror of the Galveston apocalypse, and that is the worst natural disaster that the United States has ever ever experienced. Eight thousand people dying. But you know the horror of that, and really the irony of it, is that four days before, hurricane specialists in Cuba, one of them was a leading expert in hurricanes at the time, as as the drenching rains pounded Cuba. 
The hurricane at that time didn't have the tremendous force of the winds, but it just brought tremendous range. But as this, this Cuban sky watcher watched the storm leaving Cuba, he saw these wispy clouds and he saw fire in the clouds. And after many years of observing this, he realized that the storm was a lot more well-developed. It was a lot more formed than it was even when it went over the island of Cuba. And so he countered the United States official weather bulletin and he called for there to be an emergency alert put forth. But nobody listened. A couple days before the storm hit Galveston, Louisiana, a great big steamship took off from New Orleans in relatively easy seas. In just a few hours, it was battling against 150 mile an hour winds. And the alerts were put forth. In fact, they had weather bulletin that they were supposed to put out when winds exceeded, you know, like 140, 150. And it was extreme. But nobody ushered the call. Nobody gave the warning. Why not? Because all the accepted wisdom said that hurricanes would hit Cuba, they would go a little bit farther in the Atlantic, and they would turn along the eastern seaboard, and it would pound the eastern seaboard of the United States. But the traditional wisdom said that hurricanes did not turn into the Gulf of Mexico, and therefore Galveston was safe. And so little children played on Saturday morning in the gathering waves, and that night they were destroyed. You know, I believe as we turn to Revelation chapter 10, that it's like we're in the eye of the storm. As we've been coming through the book of Revelation, it's like God is sending forth his warning. One of the things we've learned as we've opened the sealed judgments, as the Lamb of God is the one that's worthy to show us how history will end up, as we opened the sealed judgments, we saw that there was a, a mounting wind. There was a mounting pounding. There was God's judgment coming. But he didn't just pull the whistle. He didn't just pull the plug on everything. And he didn't destroy everybody. He gives time, 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 time. As we saw the Lord opening up and the angels begin to sound forth their trumpets of judgment, we've now come through six trumpets of judgment and we see God again pounding planet Earth with tremendous plagues. A third of mankind is destroyed. The fresh water system is strongly attacked. Many deaths take place at sea. But again, in Revelation chapter 9, we saw that there was the, the tremendous opportunity for people to repent. As we turn to Revelation chapter 9, as we look in the lead-in to chapter 10, our passage for today... We have an incredible statement that's made about the way people respond to the warnings of God. I want you to ask yourself today, as God warns you in your life, as he warns me in my life, how do I respond? You know, God doesn't just pull the plug on most of us. God doesn't just usually zap us and that's the end. Usually as we begin to wander into idolatry, we begin to wander into worshiping things. We begin to wander into a drug culture. We begin to wander into sexual immorality. When we begin to wander into sin, God usually gives us a series of wake-up calls. Whatever you believe about Revelation, Revelation does communicate that the heart of God loves us so much that he gives you warnings. And that's what we have in the first two series of judgments in the book of Revelation. God is telling the entire planet, just like he told the Egyptian Pharaoh. When Moses went into Pharaoh, God didn't just say, Pharaoh, tonight your son will be dead and Egypt will be ruined. God didn't do that. 
God had Moses go in and say, Pharaoh, let the people go. Let them go and worship. Let them go and, and honor me. And Pharaoh could have done it. He could have responded. God in his infinite wisdom and the wonder of his sovereignty knew that he wasn't. But the opportunity was there. And then God slowly but surely in the plagues against the Egyptians tightened down the screws. And at every level, he gives opportunities for Egyptians to repent. Some of them did. Some of them did put the blood on the doors with the Israelites. Some of them did protect their sons. Many didn't. The vast majority didn't. The sad thing is that you can read the Old Testament. It's an old, old story. And you can read about what God did to the Egyptians and the plagues when he set his people free. The book of Revelation is a much grander scale. It's not the prince of Egypt, but it's Antichrist, the prince of this world that is now devastating the entire planet during the tribulation period. As we open up to Revelation chapter 9, the last few verses tell us how is mankind and how is womankind responding to the call of God for them to turn away, for them to listen. Look what it says in Revelation chapter 9, verse 29. The rest of mankind, those who are not killed by these plagues, they repented, they prayed, they besought to find portions of the word of God. They tried to find the answers. They, wanted, they, they tried to find anyone that could tell them about Christ. Is that what it says? No. Now that would have been the smart thing to do. Instead, look what it says. It says, those who were not killed by these plagues, they did not repent of the work of their hands. What does that mean? It means they did not turn away from the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons. Now, those are very important words. I want to understand that the great challenge of your life and mine is will you worship nature and the work of our hands and material things? All you need to do is just turn on the TV and you'll see the religion of secularism. It says you will be fulfilled if you get a new car. You will be fulfilled if you go on a good trip. You will be fulfilled if you can have these kinds of clothes. You will be fulfilled if you can wear these kind of shoes. What it's saying is that your life consists in the things that you have. What makes you important, what makes you valuable, what makes you a, a really significant person is our stuff. And it's the worship of America. It's very important for us to understand that Revelation is not just talking out in the cloud somewhere. I wrestle with this and you wrestle with this. We can begin to believe, man, if I, if I could go in and buy that brand new BMW, man, I wore that brand new pickup truck, then I'd really be happy. I'd really be fulfilled. Well, all you need to do is talk to some of the guys in the church and some of the ladies in the church that have some of that stuff and ask them if they're really fulfilled. Ask them if that's the essence of life, if it totally changed their personality when they drove out. Every one of you know, don't you? You know that material things wouldn't satisfy you. How many of you know that? How many of you have ever had a pastor come up at a funeral and say, we're going to honor this person today because they drove a brand new pickup truck. And that's what we remember about them. And, and they had a quarter of a million dollar house and they made trips to Hawaii. How many of you have ever heard sermons at a funeral honoring someone like that? See, you all know what's valid. You all know what's true. The witness is in our heart. It's in my heart. But I want you to know it's a seductive pull. In fact, John tells us that when we worship the work of our hands, when we don't turn away, the idea of repentance means to turn around, to turn away from building our lives on material things. When we don't turn away from that, then I want you to see that we come under the worship of demons. 
You see, stuff is just stuff. Whether it's a gold idol in Egypt in the ancient Near East, or it's a gold idol in Babylon in the ancient Near East, or if it's a modern car, things are just things. They're just stuff. But there's something you need to realize. The battleground is over your soul. And there is an illicit evil agency called the whole satanic world that has demons that are Satan's henchmen that are constantly trying to get us to turn away from the worship of the true God and to worship just things, to worship just the here and now, to live our life as if all the meaning can be just in 70 or 80 years. And that's what the book of Revelation is, just ripping apart and saying, this is the false religion. This is what you need to stay away from. This is what you need to be careful not to build your lives upon. The Apostle John says here that they are worshipping the work of their hands and they did not stop worshipping demons. They were worshipping idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood. It's easy for us just to make that all in the past. But all of you are going to meet people this week that worship gold, silver, precious stones, things they build out of wood, their homes, all that kind of stuff. In other words, our idols in the modern world in the United States of America are not just blatant things where you go to a temple and you actually see the idols. Now, when, Josh, when Joel and Courtney were in Indonesia and when they were in Malaysia, and when they, especially in Malaysia, when they went into the Buddhist temples, it's very obvious what the idols are. I mean, you've got a gold-plated, fat Buddha sitting there, and you see people in horrible poverty that are coming, giving their wealth to this senseless, sightless, non-hearing thing. They can't do anything for us. It's totally unreal. The demonic beings that are the real things behind that false worship system just want to destroy us. They just want to hurt us. It's a no-end, deadly street. That's what the Apostle John wants us to understand. These idols cannot see, they can't hear, they can't walk. That's a dominant thing that the prophets of the Old Testament constantly talked about. It's hard for you to understand how, how hard it was for a prophet like Isaiah to stand against the gods of Assyria. When these armies would march in with their silver idols and their gold idols and they'd march in with their banners and they would come with devastating force and they would destroy the people of Israel because God was bringing them judgment. When Nebuchadnezzar marched in with his symbols of Marduk and Bel and the other Babylonian gods, it was really hard for the Jewish prophets to say, no, those are not gods. They are not alive. They can't hear Yahweh, your invisible God. The God that we'll never see because he lives in unapproachable light. The God who is spirit that must be worshipped in spirit and truth. That's really the God. That was the great challenge of an Old Testament prophet was to get men and women like you to worship the God that was really there, but he wasn't a God that you could grab a hold of, that you could see. He wasn't someone you could make with your hands. It's tragic that here at the end of time in the book of Revelation, the same conflict is going on. I want you to just stop and think about your own life. I want to think about my own life. How much are we motivated by things that we can't see, can't hear, can't respond to us? How much are we devoting our time, our energy, all of our strength to stuff that's just an idol? Now what happens to someone that starts to build their life on material things, just stuff? 
what happens to it. The next little verse here at the end of chapter 9 gives us a great insight into an idolatry, immorality connection. Look what it says. Nor did they repent. They didn't turn away from their materialistic, idolatrous worship. So what happened? There were murders. How many of you have felt the tinge of fear in your heart because of the escalating amount of murderous violence in our culture? Do you realize how much violence is increasing? We really need to wake up. It's really important for us to wake up. It's become absolutely normal for us to think of our kids going through metal detectors when they go to school. When I was going to school, they were taking spit wads away from us and bubble gum. That was the big crisis. And I meet with young people today, and, 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 we're, and we're preparing them you know, to live for Christ in the midst of the threat against their life. Why is it happening? When you worship materialism, and you care about things, and there's no true worship of the living God, then the demonic forces are able to cut loose, and murderous violence is what they do. And they sing about it, and they glorify it, and they adore it. And it's happening in our culture. Murderous violence will increase. Nor their magic arts. And when you read magic arts, what in the world is that? That's the word that's used, same word that's used in Galatians chapter 5. One of the works of the flesh is, and is the word sorcery. It's the Greek word pharmakeia. And all of you can figure out that Greek word pretty easily. We have the English word pharmacy from the Greek word pharmakeia. So what it means is this word that's used here when it's used in connection with murderous violence, it means the whole drug culture. And there's something I want all of you to understand. Drugs is not just a physical liability that you have where some of you have obsessions for that. Sure, there's genetic components. Sure, there's propensities. All of you have been born with certain sins that are especially devastating to you. They're especially addictive to you. They're especially a trouble to you. But it's not just a physical thing. You can decide whether you're going to let Jesus control your life and he'll set you free from having to give in to those negative, deadly sins. Those things that cause you to disobey God. You can decide, I'm going to respond to the Holy Spirit. And this whole book is telling you the Holy Spirit's more important than the demonic and more powerful than the demonic and he's able to set you free. But if you don't choose to submit to the Holy Spirit, and if I don't choose to live my life in Jesus, then I start to live it in another worship system, and drugs is part of that worship system. I want you to understand in the Bible, drugs is not just a physical thing. It's a worship. You do it because you believe, I've got to have this to live. I've got to have this to be alive. Whenever you feel in your heart, i got to have this. If I don't do this, if I don't have this, I'm not going to live. Whenever you feel that and you don't connect it with, if I don't have Jesus, I can't live. If I don't have God the Father, I can't live. If I don't have the power of the Holy Spirit in my life, I can't live. If you're praying like that, you're worshiping the true God. But if you're saying, man, if I don't have that, if I don't have that drug by nightfall, I can't live. Man, if I can't get another drink, I'm not going to live. What are those the words of? Uh, those are the words of adoration. They're the words of worship. Do you understand that? You're built for worship. I'm built for worship. 
You're either going to worship the living God who can see you, who can hear you, who will meet your needs, who will be kind to you, who will take you to live with him forever and ever in a world of incredible beauty and goodness, or you're going to worship someone else. And you can just look at the worship system. Go to a rap concert, listen to the violence, listen to the words of what some of the the, the secular, violent rap artists are saying. You want to know what, what the false worship is like? You see where we are? Your scripture reveals this is what happens in a culture. False worship system. It starts to lead to this kind of of breakdown. The only answer is Christ. It's not more government. The only answer is not just, you know, man, we got to really try harder to obey the Ten Commandments. It'll never work. The demonic invasion is too strong. The satanic invasion is too strong. The wickedness in my heart and in your heart is too strong. The only way you can overcome it is to get down on your knees and worship the lamb who was slain. That's the message of the book of, of Revelation. And it divides all of humanity between those that are sealed by Christ and those that are sealed by the Antichrist. Really strong words. The Apostle John also says that sexual immorality is part of this false worship system. Just like drugs. Sexual immorality... We like to call it an addiction. I understand, because I've worked a lot with that kind of an addictive pattern, but we have the idea that you call it an addiction, that somehow it's not sin anymore. Somehow it's just not involved with a spiritual thing, that, that we just have an addiction. i got to tell you, if you go to bed with someone that doesn't belong to you, you're sinning. And the Holy Spirit can set you free and committing everything to Jesus and then living your life day by day with him and having accountability partners that hold you to that, it can set you free. Nothing else can. It's time for us to recognize what's really going on and not use fancy language for it. Man, I was born with real propensities towards lying and stretching the truth. I have an addiction for it. But it's just plain old sin. And the Holy Spirit inside of me grabs my tongue and says, Words and you're sinning. Stop it. You're just trying to bring more attention to yourself. That's pride. Let me humble you. Let me live through you. That's where we need to live. Honestly, with that kind of integrity. I want you to know that whatever you might be doing, whatever you might be involved in, Jesus can set you free. This is not a place. I don't care whether it's homosexual immorality or heterosexual immorality or drug addiction or alcoholism. You are in the family of believers where we've met a Savior who can set you free. Do we believe that? That's what the book of Revelation is about. It's saying this is a worship thing. It's a religious, spiritual devotion thing. Not just the naturalistic answers, a physical thing. Sure, the physical plays a part. Sure, there can be genetic proponents and propensities. But that doesn't set us free internally from the spiritual, personal choices of responsibility that we make. The Apostle John's exposing this false religion. The final thing was, was thefts and stealing. Notice how we were just going right through the Ten Commandments, and we see that when you worship things, then the Ten Commandments are totally gone. Jesus hasn't done away with the Ten Commandments. What he's done is he fulfills them by running them on our hearts so we're able to live ethically. Now, as we open up to chapter 10, we have a lull in the storm. As we see mankind non-repentant, mankind's not responding, John the Apostle, just like he did between the sixth and seventh seal, we had an interlude 
where we had the ceiling of the 144,000 and we had the wondrous vision of the great multitude in heaven. In chapter 10 and 11, we're going to have an interlude. In fact, it's going to be chapter 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. We're going to have a major interlude here that's going to kind of fill in the pieces for it. And what John does is he begins with a picture of another angel, another mighty angel. Chapter 10, verse 1 says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like the fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea. His left foot he planted on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Who is this mighty angel that John the Apostle saw? Well, if you turn back to Revelation chapter 5, verse 2, we see the first mighty angel. It says in Revelation chapter 5, verse 2, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? So John, back in chapter 5, introduced to us to one of the very powerful elite angels that gave us the challenge, who can open the sealed book? And the answer to that question in Revelation 5 is Jesus, the lamb that was slain, can open the sealed book. So in the flow of John, when we read here in chapter 10 that he saw another mighty, powerful angel, we would assume that this is another angel, not Jesus, or not the angel of Yahweh, which was the manifestation of Jesus in the Old Testament, but probably, just like in chapter 5, one of God's elite, powerful angel. Somebody like Gabriel, for example, or Michael. In fact, Gabriel's name in Hebrew, Gabor, reminds us of, reminds us of the strong one, the mighty one. Gabriel's name in Hebrew even sounds like the mighty strong one. But I want you to see why a lot of scholars have held that maybe this is Jesus, because whoever this angel is, he's intimately related to God. Why do we know that? Look what it says. It pictures this angel as coming, he's robed in a cloud. In the Old Testament, when God would want to describe to us the wonder of his majesty and the power of his glory, he would use the imagery of being robed in a cloud. If you think about a big thunderstorm that's developing, you notice in the book of Revelation we've often had the symbolism of a thunderstorm. As you watch a big thunderstorm developing, there's the glory of the incredible cloud formations. If you'll watch that, if you'll take time out from your busy pursuit of material things, and if I will, and go outside and watch the buildup of a thunderstorm, it's one of the most awesome, incredible things that you can ever experience on this planet. As you watch these incredible billowing clouds rise up 50,000, 55,000 feet, and the sunlight hits them and the radiating brightness and the, and the color variation that's in those clouds, and you're all picturing that in your mind right now. The Old Testament prophets, like the New Testament prophets, use the wonder and the beauty of those cloud formations to give you a little description of the way you're going to be dressed in heaven. I don't believe this, this angel is equal to the angel of Yahweh, but I know that he's lived close to the angel of Yahweh because he's robed in the majestic, divine, glorious cloud. First John tells us this, And when he shall appear, we shall be like him because we shall see him 
like he is. You see, one day you're going to be robed in something more glorious than you think of those incredible beauty of the clouds developing in a thunderstorm. You're going to be dressed like that. Another thing about that cloud, though, when you look at the buildup of the thunderstorm, like, for example, if you're a pilot and you see that thunderstorm beginning to billow forth, it might be beautiful, it might be glorious, but it, be, it speaks of judgment. It speaks of beware. It speaks of warning. And in Revelation chapter 10, that's the symbolism that's used. This angel that's come clothed in this glorious cloud of the divine presence is giving us a warning. A tremendous thunderstorm from God's about ready to break forth. The second way that it describes him is he has a rainbow above his head. I've been telling you all along that the judgments of God are tempered with his mercy. The rainbow that's around his head, a rainbow in, the, in, a, in a marvelous thunderstorm. You've all seen that as well. It's one of the other most incredible natural beauties you can see. As you see a thunderstorm that's moving away from you, and you see the incredible arc of that rainbow. We all... I mean, like whenever you see one of those, you, you run inside and say, come on, you're out. you need to see this, you need to see this, it's incredible, right? How many of you have ever done that? All of you have. What does that rainbow speak to us about? It speaks to us about the beauty that God really intends for us, about the glorious celebration that he wants us to have. In Genesis chapter 9, after the destruction of planet Earth the first time, God, when Moses had landed on Mount Ararat, and Moses, I mean, and Noah landed on Mount Ararat, and Noah's family came out, And they looked up at the clouds that were beginning to vanish and they saw the rainbow, God's bow in the sky. God told them, whenever you see that bow, whenever you see that beautiful refraction of light, I want you to remember, it's my covenant promise. I'm not going to flood the earth again. There's going to be times of great natural devastation with water, but there will never be the cataclysmic destruction of planet earth by water. And so the rainbow was a promise of God's covenant with mankind. It was a statement of God's mercy. There was a remnant. Noah represented a remnant that was faithful to him. In the book of Revelation, we have the same ideas breaking forth. In the midst of the judgment of God, in the midst of the tremendous persecution against his people, he has a faithful remnant. The covenant bow of God's promise is going to continue. God's going to be faithful. And so the angel that has this beautiful rainbow around him reminds that even though this angel is coming with incredibly powerful messages of judgment, there's still the rainbow of promise. People that will listen, people that will respond, people that will turn to Christ and worship him can be set free. It says that uh, his, his faith was like the sun. Remember when Jesus was transfigured? What are you going to look like? What's your face going to work like? A lot of you really work on your face, right? A lot of you worry about your face. Well, I got good news for you. Got new, good news for you. Man, the wrinkles might come and the wrinkles might deepen and the wrinkles might not go away. You know, you might be like a precious elderly couple at a couple's retreat that I did. They got up together and they were going to sing. And the husband said to the credit, he said, I want to teach all of you ladies a great way for your wrinkles to go completely away in the eyes of your husband. And so, well, man, all the ladies got on the edge of their seat. They're already in. The husband went like that and looked at his wife and said, man, she looks just like she did when I married her. <laughs> Isn't it great to know that one day in heaven, your face is going to radiate like the sun? That's what the scriptures teach That's why this is such a precious book. Because it can drown out all the questions and all the sorrow and all the agony 
that we have to live in. It's just part of life on planet Earth, life under the sun. Revelation is pointing us to life in the sun when you're going to radiate his radiating light just like the sun. You can't even look upon it. It says here that he has legs like a fiery pillar. The fiery pillars, the words that are used that remind us of God guiding the children of Israel through the wilderness. His fiery presence, the column of fire by night and the billowing smoke by day. And so this angel has all that kind of, you can tell this angel has the divine presence. He's representing the incredible glory of God coming upon him. It says that he was holding... Uh, a little scroll which lay open in his hand and planted his right foot in the sea and his left foot on the land. This little scroll is open now. And I believe that it probably stands for the rest of the book of Revelation. We started out with a big scroll in chapter 5. Now we're just about halfway through the book, so the scroll is smaller. And John's going to take this scroll and eat it. And it's going to become part of his being so he can declare the message. And we'll talk more about that the next time we get together. But I want you to see that this angel has this little scroll that's open. And we can be really thankful for that. You want to know how planet Earth is going to end up? The little scroll is open. You can read the rest of the book of Revelation. You say, Dave, what about the seven thunders that thundered forth? You know, it doesn't tell us what they are. That's a great, great caution to us. God doesn't tell us everything about the end. God didn't tell us every single detail of what's going to happen during the tribulation period. The seven thunders sounded forth and John went to begin to write. The Lord says, just like he told Paul, when Paul went to the third heaven, the Lord says, Paul, don't tell him what it was like. Seal it. Same thing happens here. And it's a caution to us. On this side of eternity, the things that are revealed belong to us and our children. But there's going to be unanswered questions. There's details that we don't know about. What I'm trying to do as I preach through the book of Revelation is not just tickle your fancy with all kinds of, of ideas and projections that I could make on all kinds of you know, uh, situations in Israel today and everything. As we go through this book, I'm trying to teach you about God. I want to teach you things that is your pastor that I know for sure are true about God. I'm trying to teach you things that I know for sure are true about what's going to happen in the end of time. What we've learned today about the, about the false worship of the satanic system and the hold that it has upon us and how we need to turn away from that and turn to Christ. We know that that's true and we know that at the end of time that, that scenario is going to be reenacted. But we also see that it's, it can be enacted right now today in our life. As we talk about the wonder of this angelic being, we get a glimpse of the tremendous glory that lies ahead for us. But we don't know everything. One of the sure ways that you can know that if you're listening to a true teacher of the word of God is there will be humility in the way they teach you. They won't just tickle your fancy. They won't answer all your questions. There will be times when they say, we don't know. And we're going to have to wait till God answers that question. So the seven thunders are not revealed, but I want you to know as we close today that this angel puts one foot on the sea and he puts another foot on the land. I want you to see this awesome picture. You know, I could easily interpret this, this angel to be the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the presence. Maybe it is. The only reason I don't is that in the flow of revelation, he's very much connected with the angel in chapter 5 that I know wasn't Christ because the lamb is worshipped in, in a few verses later. I also know that there's a son of man figure in chapter 14, that also looks a lot like Christ, but in the flow of that chapter, he's not the angel of Yahweh. He's not Jesus himself. He's not equal to God. He's one of the angels. 
And that's why I've interpreted it the way it is. But I want you to see something. This angel is close to Jesus, close to God, because he has all these attributes that easily could be attributes of God and attributes of Christ. You know what it tells us about God? If you live close to God, if you live close to Christ, and you become like him. And Satan said, I want to be like God. You know the, the terrible irony of the kingdom of evil? Satan says, God, I'm going to be like you. And then Satan decided, in order to be like you, I'm going to walk away from you. Now, I want you to think about the logic of that. Do you know what? God wanted Satan to be like him. What did God create us? You know what Satan tells you? Don't do what Dave's telling you in the Bible. You're going to take away all your fun, take away all your good times. It's just a bunch of baloney. It's just not the truth. You need to do what you want to do. If you really want to be alive, you need to do what you want to do and believe what you want to believe and go for this life the way you want to put it together. And there's a little voice inside of you that tells that loud and clear. I want you to think about what a terrible lie that is. God's the one that gave you your breath. God's the one that gave you your life. God's the one that knows when you were born, knows all the details of your life, knows when you're going to end up. And you know what? From the bottom of my heart, he, he loves you. He wants you to be like him. He wants you to be beautiful like him and good like him and eternal like him. He wants to draw you up into an incredible union with him. It's one of the biggest lies of Satan that God is mean and God doesn't want the best for you. It's a terrible, terrible lie that he says you're going to be like God by disobeying God. What's the logic in that? How do you become like somebody by doing the exact opposite of what they told you to do? The only way to be like somebody is to be joined with them, to be united with them. That's what this angel reveals. That's what he's done. This angel is mighty and powerful, clothed in the light, clothed in rainbows and clouds. This incredible picture of what it's like to live in the divine majesty. And man, I can hardly wait. It's going to be incredible. Someday, someday, many of you are going to join together and you're going to look like that. And you're going to believe like that. And you're going to praise like that. And we're going to be together forever and ever and ever. Free from murder. Free from immorality. Free from stealing. Free from drug addiction. Free from sin. It's all because of this amazing grace. It's, it's not the nightline shows that gets me. It's, it's when I'm wrestling with sin right here in the family. And that's what tempts Mary and I sometimes to say, man, it's just not worth it. Let's forget. But then I read this chapter and I've got an angel at the end of time. The worst scenario that Satan can ever do. Satan's blowing his big guns. The Antichrist, the false prophet, all this stuff. And God doesn't even have to send his son. He just sends Gabriel or Michael or one of his mighty angels. And that mighty angel puts one foot on the sea and one foot in the land. And with a roar of a lion, he calls forth that God's judgment's going to come and God's going to win. It gives us a tremendous picture of the wonder behind our little physical existence. There's tremendous cataclysmic supernatural forces that are at work. And here's one of God's mighty strong men. But you know what the book of Hebrews says? The book of Hebrews says that because you have received Jesus as your Savior, this mighty strong man is going to be your servant. He's going to be there to meet your need. That's how much Jesus loves you. The book of Hebrews says that he made him to become a little lower than the angels so that he could be crowned with glory and honor forever and ever and ever. And Jesus it's the incredible wonder of his grace. 
is going to take all of us little human beings that have trusted in his son and believed in him. And he's going to join us with his son. And we're one day in the, in the hierarchy of heaven going to be higher than even Michael or Gabriel or any of the other mighty angels. As you go out and live this life, don't settle for some piece of steel, some little piece of gold, some little thing that can't hear you or see you or talk with you. Instead, devote your heart totally and completely. The book of Revelation is giving a warning. We need to go out this week and be conscious of the Holy Spirit working in our life to bring a warning. The book of Revelation tells us that God doesn't just come with judgment, but he comes slowly and he gives time for people to repent. And this week we have an opportunity to go out in this age of grace and talk to people about this incredible Jesus that has such incredible big plans for anyone that will believe in him. It's incredible good news. Let's pray. Father, in the eye of the storm, we'd ask you that you would help us to not mistake the calmness and the quietness for the fact that you're not going to bring justice and holiness to this earth. Lord, as modern Americans, it's hard for us to read the book of Revelation because we're just so surrounded by a culture that just believes in the material and doesn't believe that there's a righteous, holy God that rules over all the universe. But I'm thankful, Lord, that you're raising up a remnant. I'm thankful, Lord, that you've raised up many of my friends and brothers and sisters that are gathered together around me today. Oh, Lord Jesus, I would pray that you would help us to see how much you hate the satanic kingdom of idolatry, how much you hate the hurt and the agony that comes from the abuse of drugs and from immorality and stealing and and the horror of murderous violence. I'd ask you, Lord, that you would help us to ask your son to powerfully work so that today as we, we go to the schools, as we go to work, as we move out into all different parts of the country, even the world on trips, I'd ask you, Lord, that we'll be walking, every one of us walking with your spirit, so that we can bring the wonder and the glory of the promise of heaven instead of the agony and the defeat and the deadliness of hell. And I would ask you, Lord, that you would help us to really get serious about reading this book. You promised us that you would give a blessing to all those that would read it and would heed it. And I just pray that you continue to open hearts as we study it together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.